You're listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. In this podcast, I cover common problems and injuries young athletes may face and ways to keep your kids healthy and as safe as possible while participating in sports. Leading experts in the field will join me to give you the best advice and what is the state of the art in thinking about issues young athletes may face. If you have a stake in the health of young athletes, whether as a parent or coach or even a young athlete yourself, this is the podcast for you. Join me as I bring you the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Today on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast, we are going to tackle a topic that I would predict that most of us do not get enough of, and that's sleep. Sleep is a necessity for all of us, but it can have a critical role in the life of an athlete in terms of injury and performance. We're going to tackle sleep today with the goal of keeping you engaged, awake, and interested. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and you're listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Raman Maholtra, who is currently an associate professor of neurology at the Sleep Medicine Center at Washington University in St. Louis, where he serves as the program director of the Sleep Medicine Fellowship. He attended the University of Missouri, Kansas City for his undergraduate degree and medical school, and then completed his neurology residency and sleep medicine fellowship at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. He has previously served as faculty at University of Michigan and at St. Louis University School of Medicine. He currently serves as the president-elect for the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, or AASM, and has served on the board of directors for the AASM since 2015. He has served as the athletic sleep medicine consultant at University of Michigan and also saw athletes with sleep disorders for St. Louis University Athletics. He has edited two textbooks on sleep medicine and has authored numerous other chapters and peer-reviewed articles in the field. Welcome to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm sure our listeners are eager to learn a little something about sleep and why it's important for our athletes and their athletic performance. Besides the obvious reason of our body telling us it's tired, what's really the purpose of us needing to sleep and what does it really do for our body? We know sleep is important for your mind and body to recharge. We know that if you don't get sleep, our body suffers. We feel sleep is essential for health, similar to exercise and nutrition. So we know it plays a role in crucial activities such as learning, memory, mood, uh, but also other bodily functions such as immune function can even help with things such as uh, blood sugar regulation, uh, other hormones like growth hormone in cortisol, as well as cardiovascular function. So what's really amazing about the function of sleep is that the more we look, the more things we find that sleep does for our body. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about what the circadian rhythm is and why is this really important when we're discussing sleep? Yeah, the circadian rhythm is the internal body clock for the human body. It regulates the sleep cycle. It controls, for instance, when you're feeling tired and sleepy and ready for bed, and also when you're going to feel refreshed and alert during the daytime. This internal clock operates on a roughly 24-hour cycle, and that's what we call the circadian rhythm. The reason this is important is because we know that in order to be healthy and function optimally, you not only need enough sleep, which is definitely a problem in our society, but you really need to have the right timing. So you really need to try to go to bed when your body's internal clock wants you to go to bed. And you not only need to go to sleep when you're clock is telling you to go to bed, but then obviously you'd want to be awake and functioning during alert activities when your body wants you to stay awake. And so this internal clock is not only something that helps alertness and sleepiness, but we think actually every organ, maybe even every cell in the body is following its own internal clock. Hmm, That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it in terms of every cell in the body having the internal clock, but certainly would make a lot of sense that everything works together, right? 
Yeah, yeah, and you know things like when you're hungry, when your gastrointestinal system is having different functions. It's it's really curious as we will have people, circadian scientists, measuring what we never really thought of cell function as something that was different each time of day. You know, when we think about sleep, I, I know athletes think they get enough sleep, but we know that they probably don't. There was a survey done in 2006 by the National Sleep Foundation that showed that 87% of high school students and 59% of middle school students did not get enough sleep. But interesting, when you ask their parents about it, 71% of the parents thought that their child's sleep was actually adequate. What's a typical recommendation for the amount of sleep a school-aged child may need compared to a college student? And how does that change through childhood and through adolescence? Yeah, that's a great point because we do try to model our child's sleep behavior with our sleep behavior, but children need more sleep than adults. The younger the child, the more sleep they require. We think a school-age child, uh, maybe age 6 to 12, needs roughly 9 to 12 hours of sleep. And again, the, these statements of how much sleep someone needs are obviously going to vary with each child, but really that that's where the majority of children are going to fall into. And some are going to need more on that 9 range, some are going to need that 12 range. As they get a little older in high school, age 13 to 18, that moves more to that 8 to 10 range. And that's really where we see a problem because most people kind of think of their high school student as needing, oh, they just need seven to eight hours of sleep and that's why they're getting enough. But they really do need more than eight, sometimes up to 10 hours. And definitely, I know most of, well, actually, it depends on what time of year, right? In the summertime, I think our kids are probably getting adequate enough sleep as teenagers because they, well, they maybe get too much sleep. I know at my house, that's certainly the case. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the school year is a whole different story. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting how we approach sleep and school in our country. School districts often are using a staggered schedule for schools to get their kids with the bus systems to various schools. And you can have start times well before 730 in the morning, which means that kids are getting up, you know, six o'clock or earlier to start to get ready and hopefully having some breakfast. The American Academy of Pediatrics released a policy statement in 2014 that suggests high school should not start till 830. I know you were involved with a position statement released in 2017 by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, had a very similar sentiment. What are your thoughts about that type of recommendation? Do you think that would ever be possible to achieve? You know, I do. If we look at it from a perspective that every middle school and high school student deserves the opportunity to start school awake, alert, and ready to learn. If we kind of start with that premise, then I think we should be able to build a system where we're not trying to sleep deprive the children. And it's really the, the high school student and the middle school student that we worry about. They naturally are going to have a little bit of a, what we call a phase delay in their internal clock. And so they're going to uh, naturally uh, not be able to go to sleep until later in the night. This is something as the brain is maturing during that age that naturally occurs with many children that age in that middle school to high school range. And so having them go to sleep earlier in the night and waking up very early, you know, six o'clock or even earlier to get to school by seven, seven thirty is not really practical knowing about this circadian rhythm. It's actually not as challenging for the elementary school children to do that. They naturally have an earlier bedtime and wake time. And so the suggestions are that things need to be a little flipped and we need to allow those middle school and high school students to follow their natural rhythms, allow them to go to bed a little bit later and wake up a little bit later. There have been schools that have implemented this in school districts. There's even a law in the state of California now that was passed just this last year that 
states the same thing. They don't want school starting until after 8.30 a.m. for the high school. When they have implemented these changes, there's some dramatic changes that the school districts have noticed, even for short periods of time. School performance goes up, rates of things like depression and obesity improve, car accident rates can go down in the area, things like suicidal ideations and risk-taking behaviors, even things like athletic injuries were followed and coaches and, and parents noticed that athletes that were rested, getting enough sleep, following their own natural rhythm were performing better on the field, but also staying safe. That's interesting stuff to know. And I, I mean, we know so many benefits of sleep. We know that adequate sleep can be a challenge, especially for our athletes who have these long practices. Think of gymnastics as an example. You have a high level gymnast practicing up to 20 hours a week, or you have some sports like ice hockey is an example where you may have limited accessibility to space to practice just because there's limited rinks for ice time. And you can have practices going well beyond nine at night. I've had some athletes, I had one athlete come into my office one time who had had a practice and this was for indoor soccer at 11 at night. And this was a kid that was in middle school. We know that's just going to lead to issues of getting sleep at a reasonable time, getting to bed at a reasonable time, finding time to get their schoolwork done. So how can these schedules lead into the sleep challenges you may see in the office? Yeah, we definitely see that play out in our sleep clinics where we're typically seeing people with primary sleep disorders such as sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome, insomnia, narcolepsy. But the sleep deprivation that they come in with based on their schedules, as you mentioned, is really a public health epidemic. It was stated as such by the CDC. Sleep is just really not prioritized as something that's important for our children's health, even though I think the science would argue otherwise. Again, I think sleep needs to be considered essential for health, similar to what we do with diet and exercise for our children, you know, making sure they eat properly and get a lot of activity. They need to get enough sleep and scheduling a practice either too early in the morning or too late at night. It's just there's no way the math will work out to allow them to get their proper sleep. And families and athletes themselves must understand the short and long-term effects of these choices of sleep deprivation. It not only is going to affect their performance, which is one of the purposes of practice, and of course their school performance, but it's going to affect their mood, which as we know, if anyone is around uh, middle school and high schoolers can be a problem as well. You know, we're learning the long-term effects of sleep deprivation, which is sometimes scary to see as well. Most studies demonstrate that prolonged sleep deprivation over years may even cause permanent neurological damage in the brain. And so those are the things that, at least looking back at my not just childhood, but medical training, make me worry about some of the effects of some of those long hours that we had earlier on. Oh, goodness. I don't even want to think about what my uh, residency training, I know a lot, you know, a lot of that's changed as far as duty hour limits and things like that. But man, those 36 hour plus stretches sometimes of being on call and just imagining what that did to our bodies and, you know, the back and forth of having one of those and then going to a daytime schedule, then going to a nighttime schedule. Boy, I, I, I don't even want to go back and think about that anymore. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that is definitely scary. And, you know, some really nice, elegant studies will look at the people who not necessarily have sleep deprivation for years, because those would be difficult studies to do, but even just over a couple of weeks. And then notice that even after giving them enough sleep for another couple of weeks after the experiments ended, they just still never return back to their normal functioning beforehand. You know, studies like that just make you wonder what exactly the role of sleep is as far as causing permanent changes in the brain if you're depriving it of the sleep regularly. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk more about the athlete and sleep with Dr. Ramon Malhotra, a sleep medicine specialist at Washington University in St. Louis. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. 
Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising can have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my growing audience of engaged parents and dedicated coaches of young athletes, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at HealthyYoungAthletePodcast.com. We're back with Dr. Rahman Malhotra, a sleep medicine specialist at Washington University in St. Louis, and we are going to continue our discussion about sleep and the athlete. You know, many athletes, they struggle with sleep, especially before competition. There was a 2015 study of Australian athletes in their early 20s. 82% of them reported troubles falling asleep. 38% said they woke up during the night. Another 36% said they didn't feel refreshed in the morning. And the vast majority of these athletes, 83% said that their problem was related to thinking a lot about their upcoming competition. 44% had nervousness about their competition as their reason. They were allowed to answer for more than one option for these questions, which is why these go over 100%. I'm sure that translates to athletes in all ages. That's not just something that's going to affect these Australian athletes in their 20s. Do you have any recommended strategies for an athlete who may struggle that night before prior to competition to help get them a better night's sleep? Yes, you know, you exactly stated the problem is that they're worrying about, of course, the big competition coming up the next day and maybe even going through uh, some of the things they learned in practice, uh, which unfortunately, as you're trying to rest for sleep is one of the worst things to do. We really need to almost turn off your brain and turn off your mind. So I typically ask them to either, there's some resources available on different relaxation techniques or mind distraction techniques that are either apps or they could even seek seeing a counselor or even a professional psychologist. I think those techniques not only will help out with nervousness or anxiety that may occur before a, an important game the next day, but also other things that occur in life. And so especially for my young athletes, I will really encourage them to learn these techniques on how to get your mind and body to relax at nighttime, deep breathing, meditation, lots of different ideas that are available. And that seems to be the most natural way to approach it, making sure that they're having a comfortable, quiet area to sleep and so that they're not just sleeping on the couch in the living room. And then again, keeping that regular schedule is also very important. So if their game is you know, really early in the morning, it's important that they try to keep a regular schedule leading up to that. And we'll make sure to have some links to some of those resources in our show notes. I'll be sure to get them from you. But what are your thoughts about things like sleep aids? You know, that could be a medication, a supplement, environmental adjustments. You're talking about relaxation techniques. Do you have a favorite that you recommend and why or something you may avoid entirely? Well, you know, in general with our young athletes and sleep aids, I do want to make sure that they're very careful about use of those, whether they're over the counter or being prescribed by me. My main concern is that 
although they may help them sleep at night, sometimes they leave them groggy or sleepy when they wake up in the morning, is, is, which is really defeating the purpose of the medication if you're going to feel groggy even after sleeping a normal amount of sleep. Also, some of them, if they're prescription at least, can be habit-forming or addictive. I just want to make sure that if someone is going to be using them, they use them judiciously. I think using them occasionally or cautiously, for instance, before a game or activity, that's a reasonable use, assuming that they work and don't make them feel groggy. If something like the relaxation techniques and some of the sleep hygiene isn't working, I like melatonin as a reasonable starting point. I think something that uh, your body naturally produces to help you get relaxed and sleepy at night and even low doses of melatonin, again, depending on the age, but even like half a milligram or a milligram is a reasonable starting point. Otherwise, I, I do try to stay away from some of the habit-forming and addictive prescription medications, but there are some medications that are considered kind of sedating antidepressants like trazodone or a medicine called doxepin that we t tend to use as well that we feel because they don't have that habit-forming property can be helpful. But again, all of them have that concern about morning grogginess that needs to be monitored closely. And I'm sure you'd probably echo the sentiment that we, you know, we don't want to suggest trying those things as your first time to try and deal with a sleep problem the night before a big competition because you don't know what, what the adverse effect may be to you the following morning, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. And um, not only just for playing uh, a sport, but obviously getting in a car and driving, those are definitely real risks as someone tries a medication and it still is in their system in the morning. And so uh, they definitely would need to try that uh, beforehand. And obviously, again, uh, likely with their physician, trainer, someone who's kind of helped monitoring these tips that we mentioned. And then, I, you know, I also mentioned to them that, to be honest, one night of sleep deprivation, usually the worry about it is almost worse than the actual effects. And we just talked about how important sleep is, so it feels like I'm contradicting myself. But what I would say is that if, if you go into your night before of a competition already rested and already getting good amount of sleep, that one night, usually your adrenaline and other instincts are going to kick in that are really going to take over during that contest. Sometimes when it's really just one night beforehand, even just easing them and letting them know that, look, if you take twice as long to fall asleep the night before a game, you're going to be good to go. Don't worry about it. Just that relaxation will let them uh, get through the night better. We both know that athletes are looking for an edge in performance. There was a small study of 11 Stanford varsity men's basketball players. It was published in 2011 where they had those athletes increase their time in bed to 10 hours per night for a period of five to seven weeks. And after that time, they looked at performance measures and they saw that they improved their time spent by almost a second, improved their free throw accuracy by 9%, three-point accuracy by a similar amount, and their overall reaction time improved. The athletes also self-reported that they had increased vigor, they had decreased fatigue, overall improved physical and mental well-being. What are your thoughts about a study like this, and what are your thoughts of thinking of sleep as a performance enhancer? Those were really interesting studies that, like you said, showed statistically significant difference in things that I think coaches and parents and athletes would love to improve, like sprint times and free throw percentages. And I've seen studies on things like serves for tennis and you know how many faults they have. So I do think that what the, the premise behind those is that the athletes are so sleep deprived with those busy schedules that you had mentioned that just allowing them to get this sleep extension, essentially meaning getting enough sleep is going to let their body function better. And it, there's, there's no doubt that strength can improve, coordination can improve, mood, which is such a huge role in, in how well you perform in sports is going to improve, alertness. So I always say that the teams are always looking for that extra edge. And sometimes they're using things that may not be as safe. I would argue something like extending the amount of sleep they have would be a safe performance enhancer. 
What about any detrimental effects of either too much or too little sleep? You know, what we worry about with too much sleep is, again, it is a, a problem that we don't tend to focus on as much in our field only because we have such an issue with sleep deprivation that we almost don't want to go there with the excessive sleep. But there is studies that show that if you're getting too much sleep, uh, that's usually a sign that there's likely something else going on in your body. And maybe the, the quality of sleep that you're having is not normal. Maybe you suffer from something like sleep apnea. Maybe you have some abnormal movements at night that's causing causing disruption of sleep and not being aware of it. And so I usually would advise if someone is getting too much sleep, and especially if they still feel sleepy, then they likely need to seek medical attention. You and I both have an interest in concussion in sports. You know, I feel that sleep has a big role in recovery, and I really try to stress having consistency with their sleep hygiene. And I'm happy to have you talk more about what you consider to be good sleep hygiene. What are your thoughts about sleep and its role in concussion recovery? Yeah, we're learning more and more about the importance of sleep to concussion recovery. I think, uh, as you mentioned, when we both see concussions, it's not unusual for some concussion patients to report that they have really no effect on their sleep or maybe are even sleepier, and then others that really have a difficult time falling asleep or staying asleep after their concussion acutely. And, uh, you know, we do see some patterns of those patients that don't get good sleep after their concussion doing poorly or recovering slower. And so there does seem to be a role that plays there. We also, of course, realize that we're changing what their normal activities are after their concussion, which may or may not help out the situation if we're telling them to, for instance, miss school or miss of course, practice or their gameplay, we're throwing in a lot of other factors that are likely going to disrupt their their normal sleep patterns. And so I, I definitely agree with you that I think practicing good sleep habits, meaning even if we're taking away your practice and your game for the next several days, that they shouldn't try to stay up late and change their sleep schedule. They should try to remain on the same schedule they were before. And actually, we think that maybe getting some more sleep like you would do if you were sick with another illness, whether it's you know the flu or a cold or even other injuries is not unreasonable. We do think that that may help with some healing from the concussion, though I think the evidence is still lacking to prove that. But I, I definitely, uh, I think it's something easy we can focus on, give them and their parents is to allow them to, to make sure they're on a regular schedule as much as they can. I'd love to get your take on, you know, there's been some studies that have looked specifically in concussion, looking at the computerized neurocognitive testing that gets oftentimes utilized to assess athletes' recovery, where they have shown that actually if you get less than six hours per sleep per night, or if you get more than 10 hours of sleep per night, depending on which aspect you're looking at in these studies, that actually has the performance on those computerized testing is actually worse than if you're in that six to 10 hour range. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised. And I, the first time that I got introduced to computerized testing in athletes, I was the first thing that came to mind as a sleep physician was, wait a second, they're not even asking when the testing is being performed, sometimes at some really early hour or late hour based on how many athletes you have and when you can get the staff there to test them, along with other factors like how distracted they are during it and so forth that I think has been uh, published a little bit more consistently. So I'm not surprised that that is showing up in the literature more and actually had thought of possibly using those computerized testing in our sleep patients that aren't athletes and not patients we think are going to get concussions. I wonder if, for instance, you measure their pre and post CPAP for their sleep apnea, for instance, if you would see a difference. So the, the same thing that those testings programs are trying to test for concussion are very similar to what we would be testing for in our sleep clinic. So I'm not surprised that there would be an effect. 
What about the role of travel? We see a lot of youth travel teams where they're traveling around the country, flying back and forth in just a short weekend to play in another city. How much is that travel a concern when we think about our sleep and athletic performance? Yeah, there's two main things that I worry about with travel. One is if they're in and out of a city and making them sleep on a bus or a train or a plane, that is not a really comfortable place to sleep. And I don't think it's giving the athlete enough time where they could get a good quality sleep in a nice, quiet environment. So that's one issue. And the second issue is just the timing. If they're traveling across time zones, that's when that internal clock or that circadian rhythm plays a role. And there's uh, some good studies looking at mainly professional teams as they travel across time zones and how they don't function as well. For example, maybe an East Coast team traveling to the West Coast, which traditionally uh, they've always mentioned West Coast road trips as being difficult for, you know, baseball teams or football teams. And uh, one of the reasons is as that game starts at local time in the evening time and goes later into the night, it may be approaching past their bedtime when they were on the East Coast. And so their body starts to shut down in that fourth quarter or in that ninth inning. And so there's definitely a role that planning travel can have in a team, especially if they're traveling across time zones. Many professional teams have already implemented those. And uh, there is some scientific evidence that they can make a difference. What are your thoughts about electronic devices around the time of bed? And how does that directly function? You know, if someone's using it in their bedroom while they're getting ready to sleep or, you know, reading a ebook reader, your iPad, your phone, how much does that directly affect troubles with sleep? Yeah, electronic devices, you know, in the bed or just right around bedtime is definitely a challenging issue that we see in clinic all the time. There are definitely people who sleep very well where it's not affecting their sleep. And I don't necessarily focus or make them change those habits because maybe reading or using their iPad or electronic device before bed is going to relax them and, and is part of their sleep routine. However, if someone is having problems falling asleep or staying asleep, then that could be one of the culprits. We do know the, the light emitted from those devices can actually alter your internal clock or your circadian rhythm. So it actually decreases the release of melatonin, that natural kind of place setter for sleep. And so we know that staring at that screen right before bed is suppressing your melatonin, may make it more difficult to fall asleep. And then just as importantly, or maybe more importantly, what type of content either uh, your child or yourself is reading right before bed can be anxiety provoking, exciting, sad, depressing, things that are not going to help keep your mind turned off at night. And so, you know, watching the headlines of what's going on in the world may not be the most relaxing thing to do right before bed. And we definitely recommend doing something more calm, relaxing, and honestly boring before bed. And then what I will also say about the electronic devices is sleeping with them next to you, especially if there's no need for you to be next to your phone, for instance, a you know, student or a child in school uh, is, is a good idea so they don't get interrupted from other students or people texting them or that urge to wake up in the middle of the night and start using it in the middle of the night, which is just going to disrupt their sleep patterns. How good do you think some of these sleep monitoring devices are, you know, with uh, the wearables and things like that? Do, does that really give you an accurate assessment of your sleep when you're thinking about things for like you, what you think of as your high level of dealing with sleep medicine? They're very helpful uh, and they're, they're actually getting better. But the main reason they're helpful is in, in those patients, which is a vast majority of them that are not getting enough sleep, it really helps gauge uh, and remind them uh, that they need to prioritize sleep. So similar to apps and different devices that will help count calories, for instance, where you know you could do that yourself, but it's just more easy to do. These devices allow patients to realize that 
look, I'm not getting enough sleep. I've noticed that I'm, you know, only getting five, six hours of sleep the last several days. And so, although they're probably not accurate to the detail of our medical sleep studies, where we're able to tell the stages of sleep and look at abnormal medical disorders in sleep, they are actually relatively accurate in allowing us to know if the person's getting enough sleep. I, I do think there's a, a line drawn once they start getting into the depth of if it's good quality sleep. At this point, we don't feel they're comfortable enough to replace our clinical tools that we use at our sleep center. If you had the ability to give your wish list for sleep to an athlete of what they can be doing best, what would be on your wish list for that athlete? The, the main thing I would focus on is just making sure that they get enough sleep regularly. And so many of our athletes will get enough sleep when they're thinking about it, but they just don't keep that as a, as a uh, pattern. And really your body is going to function better with getting the same amount of enough sleep every night and just prioritizing that. And the second wish list would just to make sure that they ensure that their place they're trying to get sleep is comfortable. So, you know, is your bed comfortable? Is the temperature comfortable? Is it dark and quiet? making sure those electronic devices are out of their room. Those are really the, if an athlete is able to get enough sleep on a regular schedule, they're likely setting themselves up for a successful night of sleep and better functioning during the day. Fantastic. I'd like to thank Dr. Malhotra for his time and expertise today and enlightening all of us on sleep and its effect on the athlete. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. You can follow us on Facebook and we're also on Twitter at HYAPod. We appreciate your feedback and be sure to spread the word about us and our podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. I am Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. Thank you for joining us today for the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast. We hope you'll join us for future episodes. Please review our podcast and spread the word about us. You can find our full episode library at healthyyoungathletepodcast.com. This is Dr. Mark Halstead, and you've been listening to the Healthy Young Athlete Podcast.